Welcome for Trading for Keeps. This is Brian. And this is Michael. And today we have a special guest, uh, Aditya Bodbe. And I'll just give you a read a little bit about Aditya, but he is the president and founder of NanoVest Financial. And Aditya will talk a little bit more about that. But he also, throughout his career, he worked as an editor intern at the Wall Street Oasis and a sales and trading summer analyst at JP Morgan. So uh, welcome, Aditya. We're glad to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm super excited to be on this podcast. So the first question we always typically ask our guests is like, what is your experience with, I guess, trading and investing and how did you get started down that career path? And it seems like yours, you might have shifted somewhere else maybe along the way as well. So we'd just be glad to hear about that. Absolutely. You know, I actually got my, my start in trading in high school. So we had an investment club um, that one of our, our government, government economics teacher, he ran it. And I loved him. He was great. He actually happened to be our uh, seventh grade basketball coach. So he used to talk about, he had a lot of background in trading. And so he kind of convinced me, hey, come to this club. You may be interested. You know, there's a lot of uh, cool things about, you know, the world that's going on that'll help you learn about trading and what have you. So joined his club. It was sophomore year of high school and just immediately hooked. Um, we would meet, you know, once a week for lunch and we'd have a, a team of us and we were lucky because we actually had a small amount of money that he would allow us to trade. So we'd always have like his TD Ameritrade account up. Wow. We'd have this <laughs> tiny little fund. that was like, I think it was like $5,000 or something, some really tiny. But, but actual cash, not just paper trading. Yeah. Yeah. Actual right. cash. It was a donation that someone gave. Uh, they were associated with the club or something like that, you know. Um, but the one thing he did do, which I think made me fall in love with investing was that he made us do reports and presentations, um, very similar to actually, you know, later at the bank, what we had to do where we'd choose a stock, we'd have to figure out, okay, what has the stock been doing? What do we think the stock is going to do? And how do you justify your analysis and, and your forecast of the stock. And that training was crucial because that critical thinking and the ability to, you know, kind of read between the lines is what he would call it to try to understand where a stock is going to go. That kept coming up over and over and over again throughout my entire career so far. And it's, it's the same type of research that I did when I actually worked at the bank. So I credit a lot to him. Um, when I was in college, uh, my background's biomedical engineering, and later on I added on quantitative finance. But when um, I was in my sophomore year so Just for college, some of us, can, can, what is yeah. quantitative finance? What does that mean as a major? So, so, so as a major, what you're trying to understand is, is really like derivatives. It's kind of, you have a stock, it's linear. When you look at its slope, you know, it, it, it's all over the place, but you're trying to kind of peg a price of a stock over time. But where it gets really interesting is now if you start trying to figure out what, how is the slope changing over time of that particular stock? That's a derivative, right? And that's, that's where I sat in sales and trading. I was equity derivatives team. So what we're trying to understand is how are market forces changing how a stock reacts to the market? And how is that stock's uh, increase and decrease changing over time, right? Because you can have something like Microsoft for years in like the early 2000s, it's just a straight line. And you have a big market event, it would kind of shift up and down. 
But all of a sudden, you get new leadership coming in, you get new segments are going into, you get new market events that are shifting the way that they react to the market. And all of a sudden, you see that straight line start going up. So the slope has started to change. And as time, as more things happen, right, it could go up drastically and then slow down. Or it could go up kind of at an even pace and all of a sudden shoot up because of something. They introduce a new product or what have you. Um, an interesting example of something like that is looking at Tesla, right? When Tesla came in, you see this initial spike and then you just see crazy volatility over time. And now over the last, you know, <laughs> couple of months, it's just been a, a straight moonshot and it's been insane to watch. Um, but what you can understand from that is how does the market, uh, you know, what is that implied volatility? What does the market feel about that stock? It's moving so much, but why? And so that's kind of the question that you're trying to answer, because if you figure out that answer, you, you win. I mean, <laughs> that's what they've been trying to figure out for years is, okay, if I can understand every part of why this stock is going to move and where it'll end up moving, then, then you, you have the whole game. There's nothing left to figure out. So to, say, to get that right, so you were a double major then in college? These seem like very. It wasn't, very... A, double, it wasn't okay. a double major. It was. It was an interest. It was a concentration. So okay. as part of the physics program, they had a concentration of quantitative finance. Oh, in physics. But because I was doing biomedical <laughs> engineering, they're like, well, if you take a few extra physics classes and then take these classes at the B school, then we can kind of tack on this quantitative finance concentration in addition to the biomedical engineering. So, so you were a physics major. With a concentration in biomedical and then also a concentration in No, I was a biomedical engineering major with okay. a concentration of, <laughs> yeah, quantitative finance. Uh, it, just, it just seems like those are, those are kind of different <laughs> avenues to go down in life, you know? Yeah. Trust me, it took a while to convince the uh, advising office to let me do that. <laughs> because the funniest thing was I had a class in um, Phillips, which is on, on one side of campus. North Campus, and it is on the complete opposite side from Keenan Flagler. So I was taking a course there, and then my next course, I had 10 minutes to get to it. It was a derivatives course in the B school. So I had to actually rent uh, one of those like motor scooters. <laughs> I had to rent a motor scooter, and then I convinced my uh, uh, BME professor, and I told him, I was like, can I get out five minutes early? I got to get to this other class. And I told the other professor, Hey, do you mind if I come five minutes late? I was like, I, I'll be on time. I'll be five minutes late, but I'll make that five minutes late every single time. And lucky for me, they said, yeah, sure. That's fine. You know, so what, <laughs> like, what was your school? Uh, uh, UNC Chapel Hill. Okay. Awesome. I just figured yep. you'd specify that. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, no, I, I did a similar thing. I don't know. I did actually this at Wake Tech. So the community colleges, I did the uh -huh. At, in Raleigh, you have the North Campus on the north side of Raleigh, on right on mm -hmm. 401, and then you have the main campus. And mm -hmm. I kind of did the same thing, although it was a 30 minute drive during rush oh, hour. Oh, that's so I realized, <laughs> I, But I realized after doing it a couple of times, I go, you know what? If I get out of this class five minutes early, I did the same thing. If I get out five minutes early, and if I get, and I tell him, I'll be five minutes late. And then I just had to know the lanes and I figured out all the lanes, you know, entering downtown, <laughs> be on the left hand side, leaving downtown, I need to be on the right, on the right, in the far right lane. And there's like, there's one spot where I do need to change six lanes in a quarter mile. <laughs> yeah. But if I can hit that, I'm good. 
I'm telling you, the adrenaline makes you do better in the next class. You know, I believe it. I did. I did well. I did, I did very well focus. in both classes. I just feel you both coming into class, you know, drenched in sweat, you know, just having gone through that. Oh, all. it got it got really sketchy after a while because I'm just like disheveled walking into class and like, oh my god. You know? Like if you have like a test in one class, because like, you know the, the semesters end at the same time, so you're like you're taking a test in one thing about biomedical engineering, and then you're going into finance. I just imagine that's gonna yeah. be your mind has to you know shift focus really fast. Well, you know, the, the interesting part of that is I, I chose biomedical engineering as my primary major because I saw that it was a field with, you know, significant growth and it, it's continuing to grow. I really don't even think that this, this field has hit its stride yet. There's still a lot of discovery. I consider it we're, we're in this phase two, uh, so to speak, where things are starting to get commercialized, but there's still a lot to be discovered. Um, but on the other side of that, I've always been interested in business. Um, since high school, I've been interested in investing. Uh, I'd con uh, considered doing a business minor, but it just wouldn't work. And, and I figured that I was primarily interested in the investing side. So if I could just take the classes, then that'd be fine. And um, with the quantitative finance concentration, um, it was easy for me to convince the professors to be like, let me take this class. You know, I have to take this class. So then I had no problem. I I had become like really close to the registrar at Keenan Flagler. I would just send her an email saying like, Hey, I need to get in this class. And then she'd be like, all right, you're in this class. And even at one point I had taken um, an MBA class. It was with Randy Meyer, fantastic uh, uh, professor, but it was about entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship finance. And so that was a very interesting course in learning. Okay. Well, if you don't have a lot of data, and you're trying to forecast finance, like financial models and, and try to understand where all those inputs are going to be, how do you do that? And so that kind of, that, that allowed me to move back away from some of the more, uh, you know, you get your, your large companies and, and established financials and all of that to say, okay, well, can I understand that? at a fundamental level, if this is a new company, how do I do that? That's, that's what led me to, to NanoVest. In fact, you know, at that time, I had uh, joined his class with another startup I was working on. And after learning more in that class and then going to JP Morgan and coming back, um, it was kind of a project, NanoVest, in the beginning. It was actually a crowdfunding startup and started picking up a little bit of steam um, Ultimately, we had to pivot, but a lot of it had to do with, okay, you know, there are a lot of people with a lot of good ideas, but the credibility is missing because they don't have necessarily the skill set to be able to produce something as easy as like a, a DCF model, which is very common in, in, in banking. And so how can you marry the two? And then eventually what NanoVest became is, well, let's move even one step before a startup and let's look at what are the innovations and IP and technology that's being produced in a university. And then how can we, how can we take this idea of VC investments, established financials, and then try to marry that with, this is just an idea. Like literally we haven't thought of anything other than something that could potentially be patentable. Very good. And, and right. that's where NanoVest is today. So I want to get to NanoVest. I definitely do. But I want, to, I want to back up a little bit. How did, how did the investing project go in high school? You guys had $5,000 to play with. Did you grow some? Did you lose some? Can you 
I just, I just don't want to, I feel like that's a loose end. I don't want to leave it. Yes. Yeah. So I will say that we were all novices and it, it was mainly a learning experience. So from what I remember, it wasn't anything significant, right? Um, it was, it was small growth. There were already previous investments from the year before. Um, we'd occasionally find interesting uh, stocks. I think one of them was NVIDIA at the time. So okay. NVIDIA was, uh, you know, graphics card makers and they started going into computation and all of this other stuff. And I think at the time they were talking about VR and AR or something like that. And so we kind of put together this presentation that, oh, NVIDIA could be a good investment. And it turned out that it actually was a good investment. And so that was, that was a really exciting moment for us to see that, you know, all this research and all these predictions that we made actually turned into uh, uh, returns. So you, and, so you left the fund a little bit better than you found it. Just a little bit, you know, <laughs> give, give a little bit more money for the next year, just so awesome. that they, they can do the same thing. So it was, it was a lot of fun, but what it did was that, that uh, deep-seated interest in why do things go up in value? What, is, what causes that and how does that work? And how can I invest my own money and, and make money and do the same thing? And, and eventually it became, how do I make this a career? And so even going through biomedical engineering through college, in the back of my head, it was always investments, investments, investments. And even the, the decision for biomedical engineering was, can I have my own biotech investment fund one day? And I'd actually <laughs> written my uh, college application, the little letter that we have to write. Um, so my prompt to UNC was like, what do you want to do with your life or something like that? And that's exactly what I wrote. I'm All like, right. look, here, here's what I want to do. And I'm going to do everything I possibly can to get there someday. If you ever start that fund, you just have to let, let us all know and we'll, we'll plug it. <laughs> Fingers crossed, you know, uh, running a startup has, has really opened my eyes and, and added a lot of perspective into how difficult that actually is. But it, it hasn't made me waver from, from that goal. It just now I know that there's a lot that you need to do to get to that point. So, so it's time, to, time so, to get working on it. Yeah. So NanoVest, you actually started that while you were still in college. Was that my understanding? Yep, that's right. My senior year, last semester. Okay. And so you have a couple other things on your resume here, on your uh, portfolio or whatever it is. <laughs> your background that we wanted to talk to you about. Were you doing NanoVest as you were doing Wall Street Oasis and JP Morgan? So yeah, that's, that's where it gets interesting. So um, I had done that internship at JP Morgan. Um, came back, I had actually accepted the offer. And then with my friends, we had started uh, NanoVest. At the time, it was just a side project. And we had incorporated because we we're like, well, if we're going to do this crowdfunding platform, we need to have an incorporation, learn about all these things. We weren't actually crowdfunding yet. And then in back and forth with JP Morgan, they're saying, well, look, you can't do that <laughs> because that's a conflict of interest and all yep, of these other yep. things. But ultimately, what we agreed on is they gave me a deferment for a year. And they said, okay, look, you know, we understand that you're working on this. We understand that you can't just like in a, in a week or two, just give up everything and then drop everything. Come here. There's like, you know, legalities behind it because we had distributed shares and incorporated. So they said, okay, we'll give you a year to work on it. And then after a year, we can reevaluate it. And then over that year, NanoVest started taking off. And then that's when I said, you know, Am I really interested in just investment banking or 
am I interested in starting my own company and, and what would help me go towards having my own fund quicker? And what I ultimately came to the conclusion of after talking with friends and mentors and family and everyone is that this was the only time in my life where I'd have the ability to do something like that without really any risk, right? If I fall on my face, I go back to it and then, you know, go back on the regular track and I'd be fine. But what happened was along the way, I met some really great people like one of our, our co-founders, uh, Kevin McGee, who's now the CEO of the company, um, who really provided that experience and the direction on how are we going to grow this company at scale. And after finding those people, the company started moving in a direction where it's like, okay, you know what? This, is, this isn't just a project anymore. This is a legitimate company that's making revenues, that's growing. And then that's ultimately where I decided that I'm going to stick with NanoVest and, and see where it takes me. Sure. So I think awesome. we can go to more detail about NanoVest, but I, maybe just backing up a second about the JP Morgan offer and yes. what it was like working there. Because I think there's a lot of people that maybe listen to this podcast that, you know, we hear JP Morgan, it's a famous name, but like, what are they, what are they doing all day? What's going on inside JP Morgan? So to the extent that you can tell us, what, what are JP, how, how did you get that job in the first place? Because I imagine that's a really hard job to land. And then like, what were you yeah. doing inside of JP Morgan? First of all, Amazing. I mean, when I was working at Wall Street Oasis, like I said, it's, it's kind of a forum of Wall Street hopefuls that want to go into banking and what have you. Everyone has this idea of, of that fast paced banking environment where, you know, things are happening everywhere. You're seeing computer monitors and yeah, it's just a crazy. I'll tell you, that's exactly what it is. I oh, mean, really? <laughs> I, yeah. I, like, just a Wall I, Street? <laughs> yeah, you, you go in and you go to this trading floor and you're seeing people with standing desks and like six monitors set up. And I, I remember walking in and I was just starry-eyed. I was like, oh my God, this is, this is the dream. And, and we were on like the 24th floor in the middle of Hong Kong. So you're overlooking the bay and uh, IFC is like the tallest tower there. And you're like seeing that in the distance and unbelievable. So that was it was very hard for me to give that up. So the day to day of working on the trading floor was what you'd imagine, right? It's you're looking at New York markets. You're trying to understand what's going to happen in the London stock exchange. Those are kind of like the three big markets, right? And then you have smaller markets that are like Japan. And obviously because we're attached to China, we're trying to figure out what China is doing. Um, or, you know, we were working and looking at Malaysian markets, Australian markets. We really focused on Asia Pacific. But what was important was trying to understand globally what's happening. And, and what was interesting about that is that's the same time Brexit happened. So you take the regular day to day of morning meetings. Like I would get up at 445, get in the office by five. Um, you know, the MD would be in by like 515. We'd have the whole team there. We'd have a small discussion of, okay, what are we trying to do today? What happened to our investments yesterday? And this was all in preparation for a morning meeting that would happen at 7 a.m. every day. And this was every team. Um, I think I forgot how many desks there were, but let's just say like 20 desks that were focused on different areas. So they would come into this big conference room. And then they would have like one representative go up and essentially do that pitch of like, this is our desk. Here's what we're looking at. Here's what our predictions are. And here's what our positions are doing. And those, we'd go around. Go so, ahead. Those, so those positions, are, are those positions held by JP Morgan? Are those JP Morgan clients that you're looking out for? And who are JP these Morgan reports? clients. Yeah, who are these right. so reports are going out to JP Morgan clients and you're kind of. That's right. So okay. these are primarily uh, hedge fund clients, pension funds, 
um, those sort of institutions. JP Morgan can't actually hold their own positions. Um, so it is uh, primarily saying like there were a few really big clients, like one of mine was an Australian superannuation fund. It's essentially like a retirement fund that was, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or hundred, I think it was, it was actually hundreds of billions of dollars. Goodness. <laughs> it was a huge, I think it was a $400 billion superannuation fund. Let me double check that. But anyway, the idea was that we would have these big clients and every desk would work with each other. So for example, we were equity derivatives, but the main desk that would handle these hedge funds was uh, prime lending desks. So they would come in, they would have their, their contact with Prime. Prime would then say, hey, I need this, I need that. It would go across different desks and then we'd have our own little financial products that we would offer. And then we would have to essentially back those positions up in the market. So sales and trading is kind of the name of the whole desk, but there are a lot of things going on. There's like full on sales, there's full on trading. There's actually a sales and trading desk where their only job is going into the market and buying and selling. And then what we would do is we would look at um, everything from product building. So it's like, well, what is the common underlying theme that all of these funds want? Um, one big part of it was how do I protect my principal? How do I protect the money that I have and then make more money off of it? So that was one of our products is, okay, well, can we use a combination of bonds and equities and derivatives to come up with a way that you know, if their investment timeline was 10 years, you can buy a bond that'll mature in 10 years for cheaper and that extra cash you have on top, then you can put those into a diverse portfolio of stocks. And then you can, on top of those stocks, you can buy some derivatives, which um, derivatives will move uh, exponentially compared to a stock, right? So, mm -hmm. but, but it's all based on volatility. So if a stock is going up in a straight line, the, the uh, value of the option is not moving up in a straight line. But if a stock is suddenly going up exponentially, then the value of the option will also go up because options are basically looking at what is my risk over time and how is the underlying asset changing over time. And, and just for clarification, you, when you say derivatives, you mean options. They're one in the I same, I mean options. Correct? Yes, okay. Yes. Just want to make yeah. sure. So we're options clear. is a type of derivative, but there yeah. are plenty of different types of, of derivatives. Gotcha. But you, that was, so you were mainly dealing with individual stocks and the, uh, and the options of those stocks. And then you mentioned a lot of different desks. You were working on the sales and trading desk. Is that correct? So I was working on, um, what was my name on the desk? It was Asia client solutions. <laughs> okay. So, so this was an equity derivatives desk and our job was to create different, uh, products that we could then pitch to funds or retirement um, funds or, uh, hedge funds, um, you know, you name it. Like for example, one of the products that we worked on was at the time, the Japanese monetary authority was considering doing helicopter payments. So the big issue in investing in Japan is no one wants to actually invest or spend their money or basically do anything. So it's <laughs> just a straight line. And that causes a lot of issues because in terms of a market, nothing's happening. And so Japan's desperate. They're like, okay, well, what can we do? How are we going to convince people to go out and spend their money? And finally they're like, you know what? Negative interest rates. You keep your money in a bank. We're going to charge you a negative interest rate. That's going to force you to spend. Problem is 
people just took their money out of the bank and then they just held it themselves. <laughs> so <laughs> there's, there's just this big issue of like, well, what do we do? How do we give money to corporations there so that they grow and they're investing and that'll then have like a sort of trickle down effect that people will then invest as well. And, but anyway, so there was an announcement that was going to be done by their, their monetary authority, but no one really knew what the outcome was. It was basically a 50, 50 shot on, on a yes or no. So what we did was you can string together a series of different types of options, call options, put options, but they, they have specific structures where if you do a combination of them, they have different risk portfolios. So our idea was, well, we have this two week period, one week leading up, one week leading after we want to give hedge funds the ability to protect their investment, but then also get some payoff if the decision is positive or if the decision is negative, then not lose money, <laughs> like cover the losses. Right. So that's a product that we built. Um, there was like a retirement annuity uh, for it's like a pseudo retirement annuity for these superannuation funds where they want to pay back their workers over time. Typically retirement annuities are stable uh, in terms of the amount they give back and there's no market linking. So then the big question became, well, can we figure out if the market goes up, they get paid more, hmm. right? And that was a pretty interesting topic that we worked I thought, on. I thought those people would just pocket the money if it went up, right? They Because they want to keep them stable returns, right? Well, so like with an annuity, you're paying in before, right? And then yeah. after you've retired, you'll start getting your payments back. Yeah. And then there's like a, a certain amount of interest that you get on that payment. So exactly, like they get that money back, but if it's three and a half, five percent 5%, whatever, it's not... Yeah, it's, it's okay. You've, you've made more money that you've put in, yeah. but if the market is going up at like 10, yeah. 15% a year, that's, that's a lost opportunity. Yeah. I, I just, I guess, sorry. I assume like the insurance companies were going to capture the Delta, not the individuals. Oh, oh, don't worry about the insurance. Oh, still they have their way of capturing the Delta for sure. But you know, there's, there's a lot of interesting products that you can work on that. So it sounds um, like you'll know, coming into that Japanese, um, they were, they were making a big announcement and everything. And it sounds like you were designing products and I'm not trying to simplify this oversimplify it. I'm sure what you were doing was, was pretty complex, but would you maybe compare it to somebody who doesn't trade options, a butterfly spread in yep. options where it's basically, mm -hmm. it's, it's an almost a market neutral position. And if mm -hmm. anyone's interested in it, I think that's the most basic market, market neutral position you might right. be able to, uh, to find. And I have a feeling that JP Morgan chase was doing something a little bit more complex but I think mm -hmm. the butterfly spread might be a base level so somebody can kind of understand right. a market neutral position. That's exactly right. I mean, if you take that whole thing and then combine it into one average, it's basically that. That okay. or a straddle, like something like that. So um, that, that's actually a very good way of putting it. Because when, when you have huge AUMs for these funds, assets under management, you're not looking to make 30% a year. That's a lot of risk. Your job is to make sure that money doesn't go anywhere and you're making stable, consistent returns every single year. So how do you, how do you guarantee that return portfolio and minimize the risk? And you can look at last year, this year's market as an example of that, right? It's you're going up and up and up. And then all of a sudden this pandemic happens and you go down and now it's like, shady what's happening like no one really knows one day it's like oh we're doing well the other day is like what in the world is going on so um that's exactly what our job was to do is 
kind of make it a little bit more smoothed out so that people aren't freaking out about what's going on. Awesome. Well, that's, I think that's really good. Uh, really good talk. I mean, yeah, just the fact that you've been on this, the, the, the trading floor of JP Morgan Chase. Mm-hmm. Um, can we, I wanted to mention just a little bit more. So you were in the Hong Kong office, yes, which that's is, right. um, are, now are you, are you from Hong Kong or anything? I mean, how'd you end up in the Hong Kong office? Is that no, just where you so, happened to get accepted? Well, so I never did a semester abroad. So I figured that I was really interested in traveling. I was really interested in going abroad. And, and unfortunately with biomedical engineering, it's very hard to have that opportunity to do a semester abroad just because they're kind of packing you with all this work and what have you. So my theory, or, well, what I was really interested in doing was saying like, you know, I don't mind living abroad for a couple of years. And so I was interested in the London office. And I was interested in the Hong Kong office, but what really made me interested in Asia Pacific is that when it comes to these financial products, and I've done a lot of research in this, they tend to be a little more aggressive, which makes it really fun. And then also, you're dealing with a lot of different markets that behave very differently. You're looking at Japan, you're looking at China, you're looking at Malaysia, you're looking at uh, Australia, you're looking at Singapore, you're looking at, and, and because of that, you there's so much almost information overload but i I love that so that's what drove me towards working in hong kong and so applying you know just typical application process the main difference is we had jp people come and recruit at the school and like obviously went to all of those but they were recruiting for new york and so i talked to them and and was like you know i'm kind of interested and maybe not new york and they were like, well, you should look online and apply online. So I did. I applied through their online thing and they have a rolling admission. So it was actually pretty quick. Like I applied, didn't hear anything for a while. But then as soon as I heard it, it was like back to back to back. I think I heard back in like December, January, I was in New York for like multiple rounds of interviews. Um, the interview was actually interesting for me too, because I had imagined that there was going to be a big group of people and then they were going to do like all of this crazy interview day and what have you. I had two half an hour interviews. That was all. And what, what were was, those like? Those were come in. What have you done? What do you, what is the market doing right now? And what do you think is going to happen? And really? that's an that, interesting that, interview. <laughs> I was, I was, I was, I was definitely shocked. And it was, it was me and this other guy too. And so we go there and they take us up to, uh, it was their, uh, what Madison Avenue office or whatever. We go up and they take us to this room and there were, there were like quite a few people sitting in there, but it was the two people from the interview before us. They, it was kind of like a holding room, right? So we go in, there are these two people from the last interview, then us. And then when we came back, there were the two people for the next interview, but, um, it really kind of caught me off guard because they had told us that the interviews were going to be like that. So it wasn't like a huge surprise, but I think in my head, I was still preparing for interview day, complicated questions. I need to know all these numbers. They're going to ask me, you know, what are all the different uh, uh, ratios and what have you? Nothing like that. Uh, it was, it was a pretty like straightforward conversation. And I can't say that's going to be the case for everyone. I talked to some other people later and they got some harder questions. I think I, I just 
you know, I got lucky. They, they were just really nice to me. So I walk in, um, they were really interested in my background because I had been doing options trading in college and we were, to be honest, we were doing really, really well. Um, so we had started with $2,000 and we had like ended up with almost six times that. So, um, yeah, so we had a, a fairly risky, but at the time, very profitable approach to this. And it's funny. What year was that to give us some uh, context? So this was uh, 2014 into 2015. Okay. And I can even tell you our biggest uh, return was off an option for Disney that year. Interesting. And so this was a time where a lot of things were happening. You know, fuel prices were, I think fuel, uh, oil had just become decoupled from the market. There was some flu that was going on in China. Disney, uh, China, Shanghai, or Hong Kong, or someone had just opened. So there was a lot of things going on at the time. And so Disney was going up prior to that. And then there was this period uh, in the middle, I think it was like August through October, where Disney just kind of dropped. And people kept saying like, you know, people aren't going to travel, things are becoming expensive, and what have you, and people aren't going out and, you, you know, going and traveling essentially tourism was going to be down especially in china especially at this new uh disney china that they were opening they were expecting massive underperformance so me and a few of my buddies were looking into it and we were looking at like consumer discretionary numbers and we were looking at the airlines and we were looking at their earnings prior to this where they were talking about like savings on fuel and they were expecting increase. And it's really interesting. You can go through a company's 10 K report and you look at their risk line. It's like the second part of every 10 K report. And you can read what their headwinds are, what their tailwinds are, what they expect. And these people are paying millions of dollars for this kind of analysis and it's continuous analysis over year. So they know what they're doing. So in that they had already predicted that they were going to get hit. Right. So when a company predicts what's going to happen and they're right, typically what that means is in their earnings, their earnings guidance is going to be right. And the way that stock options work is it's based on implied volatility, which is again, the slope of the curve. And we went in and we're like, okay, you know what? It seems that there's a lot of guidance built into people kind of putting out there that maybe we're not going to have as strong of a quarter. And Disney specifically, there was something that was with like merchandising and the attendance at the park was higher than they expected, but their stock shot all the way back up. I mean, it was, it was a crazy amount of return. It was 5% plus extra, like on, on top of what they were thinking. And they basically what, what our uh, theory was that they were going to match the peak that they hit in July. And that's exactly what, I mean, like they were like a dollar off from hitting their peak. And so what we had done is we'd bought out of the money option calls. And these were very simple calls, but they were so far out of the money that they were extremely cheap. So we bought a lot of them, right? I mean, this is a very, very uh, rudimentary, simplistic strategy. And what ended up happening is the surprise on their earnings was massive. So we're sitting there looking at our account and I think we'd spent like, 500 600 and, and had a bunch of options 
we're looking at the value of our options and our value of our account, it was just like by, by the minute it was going up and up and up. And we're like, holy crap, what is going on? And we realized that what we assumed would be right, where they would kind of revert to what they were at, we were exactly right. And so that was a big win for us. I think Bank of America was a big win for us. Um, I believe like Learjet, um, something like that, that was a win. So there was a couple of, and that, at that time, there was a lot of volatility in the market. And so it sounds like you came in and maybe if, if you're just coming out of college and you don't have any experience trading or anything, you might get hit with the harder questions of how many ping pong balls fit inside of 747, right? <laughs> that was the question I was yeah. expecting. <laughs> That's but, what I was expecting. Yeah. I, was, I was like so sure that they were going to ask me to estimate how many flights were leaving and entering like JFK in the day. I think yeah. I, kept re- I kept remembering. And if you ask me now, I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> but at the time, I remember sitting at the airport in LaGuardia, funny enough, thinking about it. I was like, I need to know how to come up with the answer to this question. I promise you they're going to ask me that. And I go in. And then all they want to know is about this earnings chasing strategy that we called it. So it was, nice. it was a fairly easy interview. And then the question became, do you want to go to Singapore or do you want to go to Hong Kong? Because when you apply, you're applying to both. And I was like, Hong Kong all the way. So, all right, Hong Kong, I just, I find that fascinating that you were in Hong Kong because that is, you know, number one, I've never been to, uh, to the Far East there. And I think that'd be mm-hmm. cool just to be there physically. But I think also the fact that the markets, the markets open there, you know, they're the first ones to welcome the new day. That's right. So mm-hmm. how, how is that? Because, you know, I know a lot of people are focused on New York and New York time, um, you know, market time, but how is it? I guess comparatively, and I, I do want to get to some other things here. I want to ask one, 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 one killed question there because I think people, when they're like late at night, they're gonna they're on their phones. They see how Asia's doing, right? And they're like, yes. So does Asia make America tick, or does it like the American market what they do then make the Asian market tick? Do you think there's any correlation on that? You know, oh, what happens. In I will say one other? thing. Uh, I don't know how things have changed now, um, but at the time, New York was it. I mean, New York was the standard bearer of any market anywhere in the world. So what, what we dealt with, though, was the trading off of we'd catch the nighttime New York, and then we'd have to continue the strategy throughout the day. But what we would have to do on the, the back end of that was trade off to London, trade off to New York. So I will say that New York is kind of the main market, and it... it I, I kind of wonder how that's going to change now, but when, um, when you look at it as that being the primary market, then you start to understand that, okay, well, now it's the job of Hong Kong to kind of weather everything that happens overnight. And we basically have to smooth it out and take care of the clients because the clients are basically 24 seven. They, mm-hmm. they invest all over the world. So we just get the handoff, but then we, create these strategies. And then at night we would hand it back off to New York. So, and so you're almost a lot of com- communication between the two. And so you're almost trying to predict New York's open. That's that you're, actually, you're trying that's to exactly play it. the gap from New York's end to New York's open. And Hong mm-hmm. Kong is trying to play the, basically predict the gap between the two. Meanwhile, being the, the market maker in Asia as well. Um, okay. I'll tell you another interesting part about Hong Kong. I, there's, there's like so much. This is why I liked Hong Kong so much. This one is a little bit on the negative side, but China has been on a 
sustained campaign to bring down the Hong Kong markets. And you're seeing a lot of it now, a lot right? Of it. We were dealing with that as early as 2015. And so when I was there, um, even all the protests that are going on now, back then it was called the Yellow Umbrella Movement. So right on the streets in, on Hong Kong Island, like right around those areas, there were the beginnings of these protests. In and 2015? In 2015. I mean, 2016, it got a lot of back, and it really took off. But people knew that Hong Kong was officially going to be like reabsorbed by Beijing, and their government structure was at risk, their financial uh, markets were at risk. Everything was essentially at risk. And um, there's a market in China, Shenzhen. So Shenzhen is right at the top of Kowloon. And uh, China doesn't just have one big market. It's not just Shanghai. There are two. There's Shanghai is like their main financial center, but they also have another financial center around Shenzhen. And what was really interesting was there was a lot of competition between Shenzhen and Hong Kong. And, and a lot of it was to try to Hong Kong to survive Shenzhen to try to figure out how to take down Hong Kong. And so now what we're seeing is the, the progression of that today is that Hong Kong is still managing to survive. It's hard to take down such a huge market that has global presence. Cause the other thing that people don't realize is the expat community um, and, you know, French, Canadian, British, you name it. There's a huge community over there. So you're seeing a lot of this global presence. And while China is like, well, one thing they did was like raise the reserve rates on their banks and have people bring money back in, which was meant to kind of cause wreak havoc across the markets. It, it does that, but then it sort of bounces back. There's always a way they find around it. And I'm interested to see how that's going to change over time. But at least when I was there, that was kind of the big big thing of like, oh, we need to keep an eye on Shenzhen. We need to keep an eye on what China's policies are because the year before is when they had done the, I think it was the year before when they had like raised the reserve rates, they lowered the, the value of the yuan, which also wreaked havoc. Like it was pretty crazy, but it, it's interesting. It's different. It's not your typical day to day that you'd hear news coming out on market watch or Yahoo finance of what's going on in New York. Certainly. All right. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you going into that. I think, yeah, JP Morgan, obviously huge player in the international mm -hmm. world and, and, and everywhere. So I think it's really good to just kind of hear some of the inside tracks on that. Absolutely. Um, you know, I know we've already talked a little bit about NanoVest, but I don't want to skip over Wall Street Oasis. Um, it yes. looks like you were an intern there or a contributor. That was, can, can you tell us a little bit about what they, who they are, what they do, and, and what, what your role was there? And then we yeah, definitely get to NanoVest. Yes, for sure. Um, so Wall Street Oasis, it, it's a, an online community of um, like people in banking and people who aspire to be in banking. The idea is it's an exchange of ideas, tips, tricks, what have you, where people are trying to learn about how do I, how do I crack the the job interview how do i how do i get into this field how do i get in through this open door so i used to go through their forums quite a bit because especially coming from biomedical engineering is my background it's like i don't know how i have any chance unless i i do something that's very different and that was part of the reason why quantitative finance came up they're like you know maybe not a business major but maybe if you can figure out something financial to do or just take the courses that'll help you. Or 
the investing thing, there's a lot of people on there who are talking about doing their own little funds and investing and sharing back and forth. So I had done that for a while. And then I saw with their own, sorry to stop you there, but with mm -hmm. their own investment funds, were they talking about like creating a small hedge fund of sorts or just retail trading? So it's, it's, uh, it's funny. It's, I guarantee you they're hardly over (laughs) $10,000. Okay. These are, these are, these are, like 19, 20 year old kids that are going on and they'll call it a hedge fund for sure. It's not a hedge fund. Okay. Know? Yeah. <laughs> but um, it was just a bunch of, it was like-minded individuals who are interested in investing, sharing ideas. And what I saw one day was at the top, they had a call out for, Hey, come write for us. Um, and it was open. It was open to everyone. So I figured, you know, I'd apply and it's, it's all online. So I, it's not like I went to an office or anything and I was like, yeah, okay, I'll apply and didn't hear anything back. And then all of a sudden I get this thing back saying, Hey, okay, we're going to do an interview. Your interview is to write an article about anything. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll write an article. And I think I had written something about cruise lines and investing in cruise lines and um, something like that. And ended up liking the article a lot. And so part of the internship program is literally they'll give you a topic, you write about it, and then they'll either add it to some of their topics or you can post it yourself. So it was, it was fairly straightforward from that aspect. Um, is it, it was kind of like a passive thing that I was trying to do to, to build my resume and kind of build my, my chops in, in finance because it, you don't learn that otherwise. You need to be a part of the community to be able to learn that. And that really helped in the interviews. Um, that helped in the other thing that these recruiters do when they come to campus is that, you know, you network with them, you connect with them, and then uh, you'll get invited out to like dinners and stuff. Uh, and and these like social get-togethers. And you're, the whole point of those things were to go and network with the recruiting people who are typically like associates or VPs or something. Occasionally you'll have an MD come down, but very rarely. Um, But being able to speak their language was enough of a barrier for them to be, to sort of remember you. And then you send an email back right afterwards and like, Oh yeah, you're the kid who talked about, you know, what's going on in in the middle East and how that's affecting oil or something. So um, that's kind of it. But other than that, you know, it was, it was pretty straightforward. It was nothing like too sophisticated on that front. So, but it got you writing. It got you doing some research about That's things. Right. Um, I don't know if you know or not. I'm, I'm a writer as well. I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not, uh, I'm a ghost writer, so I can't divulge too okay. much information <laughs> yeah. about who I write for or anything like that. But they actually That's do awesome. that a lot. They say, okay, um, give me uh, here. I, and it's always, you know, it's, it's, it's short newsletter type stuff, you know, a thousand, right. fifteen hundred words. But they say, all right, electric vehicles, have it to mm-hmm. be Tuesday, uh, yep. you know. Swing trading versus day trading. I want that on Wednesday. You know, and like that's it. They get these little tiny things, but it, it always gives me a chance. I feel to kind of educate myself and further myself a little bit, and just like you said, speak the language. So I think absolutely, that's, I think that's really good. So I'm really encouraged about that. I'm going to keep writing. <laughs> you, my, my current assignment is SPA uh, SPACs, Special Purpose Acquisition. Oh Company. man, oh, it's actually my second, my second one yeah. on that. Yeah, so it's. It's really fun, I think, to be because I mean that that's such a fascinating, you know, trendy, trendy topic right now. And it, if ever needed, you have that knowledge in the bank in your head now. And that that I would say is 
what the biggest benefit of working at Wall Street Oasis was. Because what we'd also do is if our article got published, you would, it was funny, you'd kind of get hammered in the comments because you would have these like VPs come in and say, that's wrong. That's a wrong assumption. Like, what are you saying? Or you'll have other people who are analysts or whomever will come and say, you know, I don't, I don't think you're right. Here's why. And then you're going back and forth with them. But as long as you don't take it personally and you're like, this is an opportunity for growth. And you're like, Oh, I didn't even, I didn't even think of that. Or, Oh man, I totally missed that point. So that was really where it was kind of that chiseling effect of, okay, here's how you do a proper analysis. So if you see, if you see the progression, right, I, I started in high school, we'd have to do these little reports. That's how I learned to do them in the first place. I used the same methodology when I wrote at Wall Street Oasis, but then I got these people giving me the feedback. And then when I went to the bank, we'd have to, like all the interns would kind of rotate who was writing the analysis for the markets. And I remember um, my MD coming and talking to me, and this was part of our, our exit interview. He's like, I really, really liked your market analysis and your market morning like notes because you took into account things that would ordinarily be overlooked as seen as kind of minutia, not important details. And that was directly related to the fact that I would, I would get hammered on Wall Street Oasis about missing those things. So it's all connected in, in some way. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's great. That's really good to hear. So it sounds like, you know, networking was just a big part of it. I think that's, I think that's key with any industry Always. you want to get into. You know, if you want yep. to be the best dog groomer in town, you need to know the vets, you need to know the, the other dog groomers, the pet sitters, whoever. So I just think mm-hmm. and every industry, every, everything out there is all, always all about networking. Well, Brian, unless you had anything else on JP Morgan or Wall Street Races, I want to hear about NanoVest. <laughs> Please, yeah, give me the, the, the scoop on NanoVest. Absolutely. So just a, a quick background about NanoVest is we work with uh, university uh, tech transfer offices to do a quick overview uh, market analysis of all the relevant data associated with commercialization. So that's, you know, we're looking at patents, grants, research, uh, market analysis, so the same sort of 10K reports, um, and then other available technologies. So NanoVest came about because of my interest in biomedical engineering and marrying that with the finance side. So initially we started off primarily as consulting, worked with universities in the area in North Carolina. Um, and we just do these one-off reports where we'd come in and we'd write an analysis of what we thought a particular technology was doing, whether it filled the gap or we thought the, we would do a financial model as well, just kind of a rough uh, financial model of what we thought the ROI analysis would look like. But what that turned into was we started getting a lot of requests for doing these reports and it was getting too much. And we would try to find interns, grad, post-grad, even undergrad, and try to train them to kind of help support the creation of these reports. But it still became too much to scale to. So what it turned into was, okay, well, if we can't scale with people, can we scale with technology to fill the gap? And where we found the easiest gap to fill was just the gathering of technology. It was like understanding the technology and gathering all the relevant data. So that's exactly how we started. And this is where, where Brian and his team comes in. So we were working with them on some projects and uh, we were talking to 
Coulteran, of course. That's, that's my that's my direct boss for people listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah. And we were we were mentioning that like we were we we're going back and forth on, on a project and then we kind of demoed this initial platform to him. And we just simply asked him, we're like, you know, what do you think? Like, give us your opinion. And he's been amazing. He he's been so helpful in trying to understand. He was the one that really gave us that first validation of, wait a second, we could continue to do the consulting side, but let's seriously look into the tech development side of this, because if we can come up with what we call a triage research platform for universities, that could actually be very helpful in their commercialization process. So it's, it's their ability to just quickly gather all the data and Typically, like Brian would, would know way more about this than I do, but case managers will have like what we've seen, have the ability to quickly like understand technology and, and have an opinion formed and they're having the back and forth with the researchers. But where we come in is kind of putting that all together in a way where, you know, like here's a report and then going back to the case or the, the faculty and saying, well, look, this is what the report says. Here's potentially what you you need to work on here like relevant information you can take a look at I mean, i'll make an analogy since i'm kind of involved in this too but i was gonna say yeah if you think of so i i manage technology at a university but you could think i maybe i'm a fund manager each technology was a company right so they're giving me the, the market research on each one of these technologies or each one of these companies and they're telling me is this a company or technology that's worth investing in and we have so much such, such a large portfolio of technologies that we really need help trying to analyze all these. I can't be an expert in a million different fields. So if we had a platform or some other expert analysis that can inform our decision on whether to make bets, because we don't have unlimited resources. We can't bet on every technology. We can't bet on every company. So let's just selectively decide, okay, here's where we're gonna invest our resources and our time and effort. And here's maybe ones that maybe are a little bit too far off or too early stage or you know, maybe not relevant. And that kind of helps us make better decisions and you know, be more efficient. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. So, all right. To put that kind of in layman's terms, so do you take, I guess, a large amount of companies and technologies and, and almost rank them? Or are we trying to just say, okay, this one's worth investing in, this one's not? What What's the role here of NanoVest? So, so I'll start by saying, first of all, tech transfer as a field is way more an art than it is a science, which is ironic considering they're looking at all science. Um, <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. I, I'd second that completely. 100, 100%. <laughs> yeah. So coming up with a valuation is near impossible. It's very difficult to do. But what, what we do is mainly say that comparatively to other technologies, this technology is more mature because for example, they have, something that is patentable that will also have the ability to be commercialized and have an application as a product that will then be able to be you know, sold into the market for X amount of money. And so we're looking at a bunch of these. What we've developed is a way of essentially copying and pasting a technology onto the platform. What it'll do is it'll then compare that technology using uh, natural language processing against like you know, 300 million data points. You're looking at all patents, all awarded grants, all available technologies at other universities. Um, you're looking through SEC filings, et cetera. And we're just matching. We're saying, hey, you know, you have a technology that's like a needle. Well, here's Becton Dickinson. Here's a, a patent that, you know, is similar in, in, in its 
Uh, so I think maybe to, to Michael, like, the, the, what is the what is what are we getting from NanoVest? What is the product that you deliver? So it's essentially it's a lot of data and reporting information on a particular technology that a university can input a technology, and the idea is that we can get a, a lot of data that will inform our decision out of the platform. So exactly. is there, and I know probably a lot of these things are proprietary and secret. Is there an example you can give me to kind of bring us full circle on it? In terms of a, of a technology or? Yes. Yeah, so we can use this one. Um, I, I bring up needle because that's typically our, our example of when a technology has been submitted and we found data that was missed in why you shouldn't commercialize it. Okay. That's, that's typically a much easier question to answer than should you commercialize it? Because when you find something like uh, it, was a, it was a needle that was supposed to be used in a particular surgery, but it was steerable, that was kind of its, its main thing. Um, when you're doing that initial analysis, what you wanna look at is what is the market doing, but also patent wise, what's out there? And so our technology was able to go out and find a patent that was like almost an exact match to this needle. And because we found it, it was very easy for us to go back in and say, hey, look, because of X, Y, and Z, but specifically because of the claims in this patent, you really have no ability to create a needle without having to pay royalties to this, this owner of the patent. And it turns out we went one step further. And by the way, this, this isn't Brian's technology or anyone related to Brian. I'm just giving an example. What we found is that um, Beckton Dickinson had actually made the exact same needle. They had owned the patent, but the difference is their needle was twice the length. So we, we called them. We actually just called them and said, hey, look, you know, why are you not making a shorter needle? And they, they just flat out told us there is not a market big enough to justify us producing these needles at scale. We make them on special order. It was, it was, that was like the easiest market report that we ever had to do because you know, once we got that from Beckton Dickinson, we're like, all right, we're done. You know, that's, that's pretty cut and dry that this is not going to work. Awesome. Well, but, that's, that's really, I don't know. That's really interesting. It's fascinating. You know, I think a lot of people don't always know what companies do. And I think, um, I, I've worked in manufacturing and one of the things that I discovered was, I think, uh, it was 60%, 60% of companies exist are pre-consumer and so mm -hmm. just to know that there's this these different layers out there and these different technologies that exist and are being created um and it sounds like there's a whole lot of problems left to be solved in the world i i want to kind of piggyback to something that that brian was saying earlier which is think about it like a vc that's actually why i fell in love with this industry in the first place because it's not really think about it like it is a VC. I mean, if you think about it, right, it's they are given a certain amount of funds, either through grants or through the university itself. And they're given the task of here's this huge portfolio of technologies across the campus that, by the way, the university owns a chunk of each of these technologies. But our goal is to figure out how can we get some revenue out of some of these technologies? So we focus money is one thing, but also time and effort, right? That is also an investment in and of itself. Where does this team of case managers spend their time to make sure that they can uncover technologies that will then return revenues back to the university? And 
taking NanoVest one step further, why I'm really interested is right now, it, like how does it connect to this idea of a fund? Where it connects is the idea of derivatives again. So Brian would probably be able to tell you a lot about licensing. And typically that's how these technologies are, typic are brought to market. But there is this idea of, well, can you find a licensing structure where you're not necessarily licensing the whole technology, but you're getting some sort of um, agreement between the university and yourself saying, you know, even if it's not an exclusive agreement, an exclusive licensing option, right? The option to go in and say that, um, you know, if I find an application for this technology, then I have the ability to buy out this license and then use it to produce whatever I want to. You can actually set it up exactly like a binary option. And there's this whole analysis behind, it's called real options analysis. And that's, that's what really drove me into this field because if you think about it, that every technology has some value and value is being created at different steps along the commercialization process, you're looking at a probability analysis to understand the value of that technology. So the first part is, can I patent this? If it's yes or no, if it's a no, it's zero. If it's yes, it's it, the worth of that technology is now the cost you put into that patent, right? The next stage is, well, how much is it gonna cost for me to market this? How much is it gonna cost to produce this product? But what is a common, um, I guess, formula, formula or formulaic way of, of doing this in options analysis is, is what's called a Monte Carlo simulation, which is essentially a tree of yes or no's. And every yes and no has a value and they're all linked to each other. So if you can find the chain of yes and no's in a technology all the way from the first conference publication to when it's either licensed or it's, it's gone through an IPO, then theoretically you can figure out through that same probability analysis which technologies have the most likely possibility of being commercialized and not only that once you start assigning dollar values to each of those technologies you have a rough idea of what your investment requirements are going to be to get it to a certain value on the on the downstream end of things i said that's a very ambitious goal but i, I like it's, it <laughs> it's very i mean and that's something i understand too and and it's always in the back of my head. It's very difficult. You know, people, this isn't something I invented. This is something that people have been working on for years and years and years, but it's a problem that I like. And it's a problem that fits directly in between the quantitative finance side of things and the biomedical engineering side of things. And so that's something that I'm like, all right, I want to figure out if I can't solve the problem, I'm going to keep doing things that at least, you know, push, push that, analysis along and push the push the project along so i'm curious after hearing about all your company does it's a lot and that's very you know it's very impressive what you guys are able to do it sounds like you have university clients do you have mm -hmm. other clients Are there other clients do you have hedge funds coming to you is there or is it exclusively to universities right now exclusive universities right now um okay you know we're mainly focused on universities because that's where we see the innovation comes from certainly and so uh, our goal is to try to work with as many universities as we can and then learn from it because this isn't, this is slowly becoming my field only because I'm starting to get some experience after being doing the same thing for so long, but this isn't initially my field. So 
I love to learn. I love to talk to people like Brian who, who know this field like the back of their hand and learn from them. And then as I learn more, then I can adjust what I'm doing to fit what my goals are over time too. Certainly. Awesome. Um, one last question. I'm just curious. What, how big is your company right now, um, employee-wise? So we have three main employees, but then we work uh, with a series of interns every semester. And then we have a team of developers. Um, so if we were to look at like full count of full-time, it's three, but then company size in general is probably around, I think it's at nine people now. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. And so. uh, we had some offline conversation with the data, but like they have some interesting stories with developers and software development. And yeah. I, I'm sure you learn a lot of different skills running your own company about finance and interns and I'm sure it's management and <laughs> like there's a lot of things, but that, that's why this has been fun. And I, every day I, I'm just so thankful that I decided to take this route because the, the experiences that I've, I've gained from doing this is just, there's, there's no value you can put to them. Great. Awesome. I think, I, I, I think this has been a great interview so far. Um, Adid, yes, thank you so much for coming on with us today and just going over your, your background. Thank super, you. Thank super you. Super impressive um, from going, yeah, Wall Street Oasis, JP Morgan, and then developing your own, uh, your own technology company. It's, it's really incredible. It's, it's awesome to just meet you and, and talk to you about, you know, your background and, and all the things you've done. And, and you seem like you're very young. So I, I'm interested to see how far you go. So we'd have to check up on you, you know, in a couple of months or maybe a year or so. <laughs> I, I really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun for me. And, and I'm, I'm super excited that you guys asked me to be a part of this. This has been great. So, so, so can we... we I I want, to before do we get segment? to Brian, oh, okay. I want to I wanted to ask: is, is there any way that we can leave our listeners a way to get a hold of you if they're interested? Are you on Twitter, LinkedIn? What's what's the best way if if you want to give that information out? Yeah, LinkedIn. LinkedIn would be the the best way. So um, my username on LinkedIn is just my first name and my last name. Um, and just shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Um, and if not, you can if if I don't respond there, you can shoot me a message at. Uh, uh, Aditya at nanovest.co. All right. And we'll go ahead and we'll put both of those, a link to your LinkedIn and uh, your email address in the show notes. So, uh, so listeners can get a hold of you if they, if they're interested. Awesome. All right. I didn't, I didn't mean to cut you off, Brian. No, no, that's perfect. <laughs> we, we need that information in there. So yes, that's, that's great. What, what do you got? Brian is, uh, this is, oh, this boy. is the best part of the show. This is the fun Let's hear it. So, you know, so there, you know, there are a lot of people, there's a lot of new traders in the market and there's a lot of skeptics of the market all the time. And so a lot of people think that, you know, trading and investing is equivalent to gambling. So I want you to say, do you agree with those people? Do you disagree with those people? Why or why not? So is investing trading, is it gambling? Is it not gambling? What do you think? Uh, I don't think it's gambling, but I do think that answer depends on your approach. So if you are investing in penny stocks, that's gambling. Oh. If you're investing. <laughs> Michael, yeah. I disagree with you here. So this is no, great. No, no, no. no. I let him finish. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I'll, I'll put a little bit of a caveat on that. If you do your research, that's really what it is, right? If you are investing in the markets and you are being a good market participant, which is you're doing your research and it doesn't matter. I, I joke about penny stocks. That's always the one that, that gets hit on that. But if you understand what the company's doing, if you understand what the market is doing and you're being responsible with your investments, 
then it's not gambling, right? There is a little bit of risk involved, but the risk is associated with something. It's not just random chance that, hey, I invested in Tesla and oh my God, look at this, right? Um, it, it's you understand fundamentally what they're doing. Um, the, the other side of it is I have heard plenty of stories, including my friends, that all they will do is they'll go on Robinhood, they'll try to find the cheapest stock they possibly can, and then they'll just throw money at it. And then it goes up, you know, like a dollar or something. And they're like, oh my God, look at this. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm the best trader in the world. And you're like, that, that is gambling. <laughs> I, 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 I agree that, that a lot of, especially the penny stock world is gambling. Mm-hmm. And that's why my approach is to be the casino. <laughs> oh, okay. What do you I, mean tell me more about that. I come in with an edge, a definitive uh-huh. edge. Um, and when the market conditions are just right, I have certain patterns that work on about a 67% consistency rate. I have set stocks. Okay. Yeah. I cut my losses when, the lo- when they go against me. And I take my profits when the, when the stock was in my favor. But I, I'm a very strict uh, pattern trader. I, I trade, the, I, I trade the, the technicals exclusively. And you even mentioned, you mentioned um, you know, knowing the company and knowing the technology. I actually, in the, kind of the opposite, I try to get at least invested as possible because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm such a short-term day trader. But you, um, you care I, about the sector. There's certain sectors you don't invest I in. I do. No, I do. You're mm-hmm. right. I do. All right. Now, f- yes, I don't touch gold and silver because for some, well, part of it is too, their, their, their floats are so high. They're much mm-hmm. more, they're much more susceptible. They're not as susceptible to these massive moves. Um, mm-hmm. So Michael but trades I, breakouts just for perspective. Yes, I, do. Oh, okay, I got certain you. I got patterns. You. He's he's a very sure, technical sure, sure. trader. He's not like a, you know just throw something at the wall and hope that the day works. Well, out. it's in the name, right? <laughs> technical trader. You're doing your research. So so there are there's it's a gray area of your risk portfolio um, in terms of anyone, right? You Tesla is still a highly risky stock. You have no Super. idea. It's oh yeah, just incredibly. But they're also worth like I, I think Tesla's what fourteen hundred fifty who knows it's been <laughs> it's been from thirteen hundred fourteen hundred got up to seventeen hundred back to fifteen hundred that's an extremely expensive stock yet it is incredibly volatile I just remember so, it was four four twenty I thought that was high and it was right, yeah, right? <laughs> well you know Tesla was my risk investment like five years ago. So I put, when, when I started going into more like, I'm going to start my own company or this was before going to JP Morgan and I'm like, you know, I'm going to wrap up this options trading fund and I'm going to start taking all of the revenue of that, uh, uh, the returns of that and just stick it into um, value investing. So that's like what Warren Buffett does. And I read The Intelligent Investor. And for me, Tesla was something that I saw would have value but it was just still very risky. And you have someone like Elon Musk at the helm, it's going to be very risky. But it, it took a while, right? For, for a long time, it'd go up and down, up and down, up and down. And now recently it exploded, but you never know. And so that's why there's always going to be an aspect of gambling, but I see gambling as you close your eyes and you chuck a dart at a dartboard and that's the stock you're going to buy. And people do do that, right? And that's, yep. <laughs> that isn't the way that you be a good market participant because you win some, you lose some. But the funny part is what people don't realize is that that strategy is actually what the market is all about. You come out, you net out 
at even <laughs> because you're going to win some, you're going to lose some and you'll, you'll follow the market to some extent, but you're not going to have the same level of success as, as the big guys who are making these 30% returns a year. Right. So you have to be knowledgeable about what you're doing. And, and, and it, it seems like uh, Michael, that, that is, that's what you're doing, right? You're, you're being technical about it. You have your rules, you have your strategies and that's what makes it different. Yes. I show up every day. I have very explicit rules. If it drops below this rate, I sell, I'm out. I take my loss. If I'm up this much, I go ahead and start taking my profit. Yeah. So yes, mine is, my approach is very, very rules-based. And I think that that's one of the keys when I, I think to anyone coming into the market is just make sure you, you have a plan coming into the market. You know, mm-hmm. if you just, Otherwise you end up, you know, what, what I, I see these people out there like, well, I don't, I sold all of my positions that were up and so now I'm up so much on the year. I'm like, that's the complete opposite. You should have sold all your positions that were down and held all your positions that were up. Cause guess what's probably going to continue to go up. Right. Emotion right. is the biggest killer of a return because it is not based on any facts. It's just how you feel. And that's, yep. that's the big part about, and uh, there's there's a statistic, right? It's like 5% of market players are the ones that win the returns. The other 95%, uh, the value has to be generated somewhere. Someone is buying and someone is selling. But it's really that 5% that are principled, that aren't emotional, that are doing the research that are actually the ones making a majority of the returns. Yep. And that's always something to keep in mind. So you gotta, it's like the, the people that are listening to this or anyone who's interested in the market, your goal is to be a part of that 5%. Exactly. No, I, I, that's perfect. You can't, you can't leave it any better than that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we really appreciate your time, Aditya. And um, thank you for being with us today. And so I'll just, I'll just do the closing note here. So thank you for listening. Okay. This is uh, Training for Keeps. I'm Brian. And this is Michael. Thanks for tuning in.